A popular question we get asked regularly is, how do I know if my customers are happy with our relationship? There's probably no better way to identify how to build better relationships with your clients than by using our Mindset Survey tool. The Sales Mindset Survey is a free-to-use tool that is revolutionizing the sales performance industry. This survey utilizes competing questions and the user's perceptions of themselves to identify just how well they truly perform. Are you manipulative or authentic, supplier or client-centric, complacent or proactively creative, overtly arrogant or tactfully audacious? There is no right or wrong and the survey will only be helpful as you are honest. But then why did you go one step further? We also offer a 360-degree perspective that allows you to share the survey with your peers and colleagues, as well as your customers to gain even deeper understanding of how you sell. Do your customers see you in the same light of how you see yourself? By focusing on those problem areas, you will join the top 10% of sales performers in the industry and make your way to the winner's circle. Becoming a better salesperson has never been an easy task but the journey can be made much quicker and more effective with the right tools. Why did you give the Sales Mindset Survey a go today? The results may just surprise you. The link to the survey is in the show notes. Now, on to the episode. Hi, and welcome to this episode of the Mastercast. I am joined um, by our very own Phil Squire, CEO of Consalia. My name is Will Squire. Um, head of sales at Consalia. And on this episode, we are going to be exploring uh, in more detail um, Phil's dissertation, because really the uh, outcomes of Phil's dissertation has led led us to where we are, we're at today. And I think it's um, going to be really interesting to explore the themes and the interests and um, you know what sparked Phil's desire to uh, to to get a doctorate. Um, Phil, you're probably one of the the only handful of people in it, in the country, if not the world, with a doctorate in sales. Um, does how does that feel? Um, well, I suppose you're in a sort of yeah, it's a very much a minority a minority group, um, and. Uh, the encouraging news, of course, is that there are more and more doctorates in sales kind of emerging. But, um, you know, there are a number of based out in USA, which have got doctorates in sales. And um, I've met someone else in South Korea whose doctorate was on a sales related topic. Um, and uh, yeah, so how does it feel? I don't know. Um sort of slightly uh, sort of marooned in an ocean out there as being one of the few people that have actually done a doctorate on the topic. Um, yeah, but the great thing is that it's a situation slowly changing yeah. and it, it's quite exciting to be part of a growing movement of people who are taking an academic interest in sales. Uh, so from that point of view, it's, it's been a privilege to be on that particular journey. And, and just for the, the benefit of our listeners, um, what was the title of your dissertation? 
Well, do you want the short title or do you want the long title? Well, let's do the long, uh, the long title first, and then we can refer back to it in the short in the short title. Yes, yeah, it's quite interesting one on titles because I, I I remember spending quite a bit of time with um, with Peter Critton uh, discussing the title, and he was very much he was very much the person that helped me get to the title at the end. But the long title is how can a client centric values approach to selling lead to the co-creation of a new global selling mindset? So I guess we've got the, um, you know, we've, we've got the word client centric and much of the dissertation research was based on, asking customers their points of view about uh, salesmanship. Uh, the co-creation is that the um, process that was used to actually start to synthesize information was very much a, a collaboration between people inside Consalia, uh, customers, as well as um, certain academics that I worked with as well. So that was the co-creation. So I actually had a couple of really interesting mentors. Um, I had uh, a professor at Babson College um, who I had met at IMD doing a global account selling program, uh, Professor David Hennessy, and also an author of a book on key account management. And I had uh, Roger Scarlett Smith, um, who at the time was CEO of uh, uh, GSK's business, I think it was in Australia at the time. Um, so, yeah, it was very much a sort of collaborative process, uh, and so hence collaboration or co-creation. And it was global because uh, the research took me all over the world. Um, so I literally was um, doing my research from Asia right through to Mexico, um, and you know, of course, Europe and Central Europe. So the outputs of the research was based on information and data that, that came from very different parts of, of the world and also uh, many different sectors as well. So it sort of crossed yeah, a huge number of sectors as well. So it's, it was a fairly comprehensive um, number of interviews that took place that started to form the base data for the outputs of the research. I, before we before we kind of go into that level of detail, um, I'm sure we all now want to know what you what the short title is. How do customers want to be sold to? <laughs> <laughs> that's, yeah. Um, that's... So 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 that's the short title. Um, <laughs> I, I never forgave uh, Peter for coming up with such a long title um, because I. It was quite interesting when I was writing the the dissertation. Um, I th I was very much wanting to write it with uh, an audience in mind who would be practicing sales professionals and not academics. I wanted to, it to be a a dissertation that 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 salespeople would pick up and could read, even though, of course, it was written to a doctorate level academic standard. Um, but Peter did influence the title. So, so probably I put everyone off in the title, <laughs> which is why I tend to shorten it when I, when I talk to people about it. Yeah. I think how, how do customers want to be sold to is something that I think 
anyone can understand pretty, pretty, pretty easily. Yeah, I guess. I guess. Um, well, what I'm really interested to know is what led you to to kind of um, wanting to go down this path. Like, what what sparked uh, your interest in this topic? Well, my my interest was sparked as a as a um, as on the back of some. Uh, consulting work that we were doing with, um, at the time it was Hewlett Packard and they had asked me to go out and interview a number of their customers, uh, on that question of how do you want to be sold to? And, um, I went with a video crew and interviewed, uh, just three of their customers at the time. And, uh, those interviews were, you know, were, were really fascinating. Um, essentially what I was doing with the, with the three interviews was first of all, asking customers about the context of the world in which they operated in, you know, what sort of challenges they faced. And then given the challenges they faced, I then went on to ask questions about, um, how do they want to be sold to, um, uh, given the sort of businesses you're in, the challenges that you face and, I got them to give me examples, you know, actually live examples of things that salespeople did that um, they wanted to talk about and uh, talk about both in a negative sense as well as in a, in a positive sense. Um, and based on uh, those interviews that I had, it was, it was quite interesting because, you know, I, I could see that they themselves were really interested to answer these questions, which told me that customers cared about how salespeople sell to them. Um, of course, I was interested in the commentary that they made, which was, which was mainly negative. Um, and I, I remember after the very first interview I did, and we were literally, I'd finished the interview and I'd collected examples of good and poor practice. And I think it was Bob Frisell, who was the very first person that I interviewed, who, who was a CIO at IMS Health at the time. And he was walking out of the door and he, uh, I just asked the, the question, what percentage of salespeople sell in a way that you want? And he said, well, less than 10%. Or, and I said, would you mind if I captured that on video? Because I, no, I, th I think that, you know, the HP community would be quite interested in that. And then I incorporated that, that question in all of the interviews that I did. I was, I was very interested to get some sort of take on a, what was good and poor practice in their view. And then what percentage of salespeople sell in a way that customers wanted. Um, so I, I, you know, it was only three interviews, but two of the three, um, interviewees gave me um, that same feedback. Um, and the, the third didn't give me a percentage figure, but you could tell from the interview that, that there were not that many people that particularly impressed him in the way they sold. Um, so I had this going on, um, it's quite a in my mind. Damning in indictment of the sales profession. Then if your, your pool of three interviewees only Two of two of them echoed that only ten percent. Um, um, yes, it was, but at, th at that time, you, you sort of don't know whether 
it was just luck because the sample size was too, you know, very small. Mm. Um, but there was, uh, what, what concerned, not concerned me, but it sort of impressed me was the, uh, emotion that was attached to the interviews, you know, um, both pos positive and negative, you know, that they really cared. So I had this, I had this, yeah, customers really care about the salesmanship. That's interesting. Um, I had this data, these data points that kind of, like you said, I don't know if it was a, a you know, a, a, a damning indication that, you know, there's major problems. It was a red alert, but it wasn't like, you know, the sample size was just too small. Um, and that, that, research that was not done as part of the doctorate um was in, uh, done at a time that by chance i met someone from middlesex university um who um turned round to me and asked me a question at, at the end of a meeting and he, he sort of suggested why don't you do a doctorate just out the blue and it caught me completely by surprise and i you know, I'd, I'd not gone to university and I'd not, um, you know, got an undergraduate or a postgraduate degree. And I said, I told him that. And he said, well, it doesn't matter, actually. Um, as long as you can demonstrate, you can think critically enough at doctorate level. And I would have thought you can because you're the CEO of a company and, you, you know, you, I, you, you must possess a certain intellect, you know, to do the kind of job that you did, did. And it, it was really him, um, suggesting that I might take this research and turn it into a doctorate that led me to this decision to do it. The research that I'd done plus the chance meeting. And that's where it all started. Wow. So could you tell us, walk me through the next step. So you had this meeting with someone at Middlesex University who said, you can take this topic and make it into a doctorate. But did you, did you realize at the time where this research was going to go? Or did you, did you have any inkling um, to, to some of the kind of results that you found towards the end of your dissertation? How, how did you approach it? No, I mean, I had no idea where, where the research would take me. Um, in fact, my, my biggest preoccupation and if a large part of the first year was, could I do it? Mm. Could I, could I research? Could I write? Could I, you know, was I capable of actually doing a doctorate? And I remember when I was, when I was writing my, you know, papers to even get permission to do the doctorate, you had to go through certain hoops, you know, you, because I didn't have the past qualifications, I had to demonstrate, like I said earlier, that I, I had I had the skills of reflection to be able to do a doctorate. And um, I kept on getting my submissions with red lines in it. And uh, the low point, I, I think I was running a workshop in Istanbul at the time for one of our clients. And I got my sort of third attempt at handing a piece of work in and I got more lines through this than I did the first one. And I really thought, God, I just don't know if I can do this. And it, and, it, and, 
it, it sort of suddenly clicked when I, I had a conversation with, with my supervisor about what was going wrong. And, um, they kept on writing in the margin of my, my, uh, submissions. Uh, but what do you think, Phil? But what do you think? Cause I, I wasn't writing it, putting myself at the center of my inquiry. I was writing it in an academic style that, I felt they were looking for, but was not what was required for the particular type of doctorate that I was doing. And uh, but once I'd cracked the code of how to to write, then I, I you know I was I was set to go. You know I'd sort of uh, that 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 for me was was um, a big moment where suddenly things became. I realised what I I was doing wrong, and therefore. You know, I got over that hurdle of can I do it or not? Yeah. Um, but so, so at the beginning, I was very much preoccupied with how to do the research, how to do the referencing, how to, to do the writing. And I had absolutely no idea what the outcome of the research would be. You know, it was a question. You know, I wanted to pursue this question about how do customers want to be sold to, to try and find why why were so few salespeople selling in the 10 percent you know level and indeed was that sample of three representative of a much larger sample of customers so i had to go out and talk to a lot more people and get a lot more data in order to um determine that statistically this was you know this was a fact a truth rather than a hypothesis yeah so, um, you know, who did you interview and um, were there any, apart from that initial kind of discussion you, you had that, that sparked your interest, were there any standout moments within those interviews that you, that you had on, the, on your research journey? Um, I, I, would say, uh, I would say that... Um, Every interview was really interesting, no matter who I interviewed. And um, so, so there was no one interview that I didn't enjoy. But the standout set of interviews that I did was probably going to Seattle and interviewing Starbucks on the one hand and Hewlett-Packard on the other about a particular creative deal that they'd done together and to be able to get the um the sellers and the buyers involved in 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 the um in the interview process was 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 amazing and they were they were all very collaborative in 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 sort of giving me input but that that for me was the data that we got from those sets of interviews um really helped to shape the final outcomes of the research that was done but that happened much later in in the journey in uh that i took um but no there i mean you do meet characters when you're interviewing and there were definitely some really interesting characters that i met and um and uh people that have become friends uh or business acquaintances since uh since those times so yeah it was a very formative 
process just the interviewing yeah. in building relationships and getting insights. So how, how many people did you interview? I think, I, gosh, I think there were about 83 people in the end that formed the basis of uh, the interviews um, that I did as part of the doctorate submission. Yeah. Um, and they were all, you know, a mixture of uh, department heads, the general managers, um, the C-suite, uh, heads of procurement, uh, you know, really crossed every type of buyer. I mean, I was focused on the B2B market and I was focused on perhaps the, the slightly larger um, acquisitions than commodity type selling processes. Um, though, uh, you know, we did, we did interview people in retail, um, you know, the FMCG market as well as, you know, people in manufacturing. I was quite lucky because um, HP were very interested in me going out and uh, conducting these interviews. And they, they, you know, they asked me to go around the world interviewing other customers from the initial three that I did. But I also had, um, I also had Tetra Pak, uh, the manufacturing company based in Sweden, who had heard about the research and they wanted me to do the same. And I also had Siemens uh, mobile phones. So I had three quite major, if you like, sponsors of the research who were also part of the um, collaboration that took place with the outputs of the research. Mm. Um, and that really sort of, I think, gave the whole research process a lot of credibility, you know, because the you know, the sponsorship angle plus the fact that they were very much part of the evolution of the ideas that came from it. It sort of helped help the case, if you like, for the conclusions we came to. Did they um that's really interesting. I just wonder if could they have influenced your research in any way? Um well it's it's interesting this this idea of you know we talk about it don't we um you know on our programs about bias and and um um they they clearly were involved in selecting the customers that they wanted me to go and interview so in that sense they may have had a, a vested interest in knowing you know what what key accounts actually thought about them um they certainly didn't get involved in the detailed reflection that led to the emergence of the themes that came out at the end. Um, so, and because it was so multicultural, there was no sort of, there was no evidence of bias. I, I know during the early stages of, of me analyzing the data, I, could, I, I certainly realized that I wasn't looking at the data in the way that I should have done. And it was blocking my ability to be able to really listen uh, to the research uh, that was coming out, but um, uh, in, a, in a deep way. And, uh, and it, it's a very interesting, this idea of, of sort of putting yourself at the center of your inquiry, but at the same time, uh, wanting to be objective about the data that you have, it's very difficult to separate your own your own personal um, 
bias based on your own knowledge of a topic in the way that you start to write up your your projects and form ideas. And I remember, you know, a low moment in my in my doctorate was was pulling together, I think after a couple of years, all the data and running a workshop with Professor Yip, um, who was at London Business School at the time, and and sort of trying to make sense with buyers and sellers the data and coming up with a list of framework of competencies and skills. And I I looked at this afterwards and I thought, well, has my two years sort of led me to this? Because there's absolutely nothing new here that we didn't know before. And and that was the low moment what, in my in my uh journey <laughs> I, I can Im- to something else. I can imagine because you're just you're trying to break new ground and <laughs> I was desperately, I was still getting the 10%, by the way. You know, 80% of everyone that I interviewed said that less than 10% of people sold in the way they wanted. So I'd, I'm still getting this this message. You know, I had that completely, you know, collaborated by a large number of people. But yet, when we started to try and look at what are the sort of things that one needs to do with a sales organization to put them in the 10%. We we were coming up with the same standard stuff. And, and um, I worried about it because uh, it was a, an indictment of my own industry, which is sales training, that we are training people to become better sellers. And when we looked at this uh, competency framework, I knew that that's what we were training people to do. Question, listen, problem solve, price handle, and all of these things. And, and you know, we talked about resilience and, and having a good CRM and prospecting. And, and we, I know billions of dollars go into training people in these topics. And I was still getting this 10% figure coming up. Or time and time again and so there was nothing new after two years i had reached a stone wall and thought do i jack it in yeah <laughs> so yeah what changed uh, what changed at that point um well it was it was a lecture that i attended uh a run at middlesex university by uh gene mcniff um who is probably one of the world's um, thought leaders around how to do work-based learning. And one of the things that she um, asked me uh, sort of kind of out the blue was, was a question about what my, what my personal values were. And I remember sort of being shocked at the question and I blabbered a bit and, and then said, well, it's family and integrity and all these things that you tend to sort of churn out when, when you put on the spot and she didn't say that you know what i was saying was bullshit or anything but um she suggested that i might want to reflect on that a bit more deeply and i did and uh that that particular journey was so interesting because i i took a really deep dive at uh you know my past my upbringing my work environment to try and understand the um the values and belief systems that i had which could cause me to have bias when i was looking at data and 
And so I went for a period of time after having done all of this research, um, questioning my filters, if you like, the filters through which I was looking at data. And I began to realize how glib I was in my answer to, to Jean and uh, began to understand um, that whole connection uh, between how it is you look at information and also how you communicate and values systems. And so I thought that I would then start to look at the same data again, but with this lens of values. And I began to see incredibly clearly that when customers were talking about what they liked and disliked, they often used words that were more associated with values than they were with technique or process or whatever. You know, they were talking about integrity and partnership and, and, and so on. And so once I'd kind of, once I had that Gene McNiff um, comment, it, it completely opened up a very new way of looking at the same data and came up with completely um, different conclusions. And that in itself, as a researcher, that is itself, it's very exciting, um, quite an empowering and motivating process. You know, yeah. you suddenly get this big aha moment and all of a sudden you can see lots of possibilities because you're looking at things in a very di- through a very different lens. And I, um, I, I also researched, um, people like Howard Gardner and Otto Sharma, who, um, Otto Sharma, who wrote Theory U and uh, as a, uh, approach to communications and and Howard Gardner who'd written books on uh uh mindsets and values and uh the these two academic uh writers were quite influential in how I then started to shape my final uh sort of thesis I I guess Otto Sharma because I understood that what he described in theory U which is where you you go down one side of the view of, of going through a process of letting go ideas and preconceptions. And you're basically trying to get your head in a space that is without bias. And he is suggesting, as indeed happened to me, is that once you've done that, you can then have a mind that will let in new ideas and let come new ideas. So you, you let go and let come. And you go through different stages of maturity as you are going through the letting come phase where you sort of sense something is going to be a new area to investigate and then you shape it and then it, it crystallizes into something that becomes incredibly concrete. And that's exactly what happened, you know, to me when I, when I did the dissertation and when I was doing the research and, uh, the energy levels uh, change from being I'm about to jack it all in into a, a real enthusiasm. Um, and we went through a process with some of the internal team, with Libby Drake, who is the head of our sort of learning design team, 
in particular, and with Peter Critton, as I mentioned before, actually sort of going over the data and, and spending a lot of time looking at words and how those words would uh, capture the values that customers either liked or didn't like in salespeople. Um, and that, that was really, um, that was really enjoyable. And it, it took me into Latin and entomology and uh, where do words come from? You know, so I had quite, quite a lot of fun just, just thinking carefully about words. Yeah. <laughs> and Peter, Peter was helpful then because he was a, a Latin scholar and, you know, uh, he, he, he knew where a lot of these words originated from. Yeah. And I quite enjoyed that process. Guys, well, it sounds like it was a real, real journey, if you like. And actually, I guess when you, you'd initially reached that point where you had all of the data and nothing new was coming from it, it sounded like you went through your own personal um, reflection cycle. Oh, it did. Yeah. I mean, it was, you know, you look at everything, you look at your, your childhood, you look at your early employment, you look at your marriage, you look at your family, you know, you look at everything and you, you sort of distill that. I mean, I did. Uh, what I found interesting about that process with, was, um, looking at a pivotal event and using that pivotal, pivotal event to reflect on how you reacted and how you felt at the time. Uh, and that for me was the truest form of identifying values, not selecting values off a page, but actually going back to things that have happened in your life that you can then kind of describe positively or negatively, you know, I'd say negatively sort of values that you don't particularly like or values that you do like. <laughs> and, uh, and so I found that incredibly interesting. And, and, you know, sometimes that conversation that you have with yourself is uncomfortable, you know, because you are, you are really sort of digging quite deep. Um, but I felt irrespective of the outputs of the, uh, doctorate, that that process in itself was incredibly helpful because you could you could better understand yourself and therefore how you are going to act or react once you defined what your you know core values were yeah at the time so it, is that the sort of is the realization therefore it was really important to understand your own values in order to make sense of um, any, you know, particular situations or interpreting um, the data in this kind of case. So it sounds like you, you, you looked, you took, you had like this intrinsic uh, look at yourself to un and you've identified your own values, but then it kind of manifested itself in how in the case of your doctorate, how you would then process and uh, interrogate the data in a new way. Um, and I find that link is really interesting. And, um, and, and so, yeah, I guess if you could comment on that, but then also, is it possible 
or not to um, uh, try and make sense of data without actually, first of all, understanding your own self and your own values. Right. So there are a number of, uh, I think, questions in, in, in there that you've, you've, you've kind of asked. There are a couple of things that I began to get interested in. One is the, the predictive nature, the, 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 the prediction that you can have once you understand values, because when you have a pivotal event that's happened, you don't have time to think often. You have to act instinctively in the best way you can. And the way that you do that is going to be driven by circumstance and and what your core values are in, in many cases. Um, so I was interested in making this connection between predictable behavior. Yeah, that was... And then, and then, of course, it was the, you know, if we're getting behavior that customers are saying they like and not like, it then led to the question, well, what's the value that then drives that behavior? <laughs> you know, so, um, so that's how these things sort of came together. And, uh, what made the whole thing sort of quite easy was the, um, the fact that customers were often quite explicit in what values they wanted, even though I wasn't looking at the time for that, uh, you know, that, uh, that connection. So I, yes, I would say that unless you go through the kind of process that I went through, you know, one could hold to question the objectivity of any research that you do because you haven't fully understood your potential bias yeah. in the way you look at data. Well, that's really, really fascinating. Um, so then, okay, so then you've analyzed the data uh, following your interviews with with a new lens, should we say, for better, for one of better words. Um, and sort of what what were some of the key results that came from the research? Well, we we went through a process of 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 looking at um trying to codify you know what the negative values were that customers always that that customers frequently saw and codified positive values and uh the first bit of getting to what became a set of four negative and four positive values were were you know i think we started off with I can't remember how many we sort of like eight or nine negative and eight or nine positive. And we, you know, we, we constantly came back to the list and we, you know, we said, is that really the right word? You know, does that really capture it? For example, you know, one of the, one of the words and it's in the title of the academic version of the dissertation around collaboration was we actually wondered whether collaboration was a core value that um, should be very explicitly stated. Um, uh, we looked at words like integrity and is that the core word or is it authenticity? You know, we, we spent a lot of time looking at, well, if you had client sent, if, if you had a word like client centricity as one of the core values, then 
If you were really client-centric, wouldn't you therefore be collaborative? Yeah. So we, we spent a lot of time going over the list. And, I, and right up to me writing my final dissertation, I was still playing with it because I wasn't quite sure that, that that was the list. And, of course, I was testing the positive and negative mindset conclusions with the clients, you know, saying, look, you know, I remember sitting down with HP and saying, look, this isn't quite what I had um, thought I'd come out with with the research, but it seems to me that these four values stroke mindsets, and I use those words in, interchangeably, seem to be negative ones driving clients to say that they don't like salespeople or sales approaches. And then we had these set of four that were positive. What do you think? And it, I remember at HP, they, it took them 30 seconds to say that's exactly how we need our salespeople to sell. If we know that they have these mindsets, then just intuitively at the time, they felt that this was going to lead to good results. Um, and, and so, um, yeah, the, 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 you know, we started off with defining the negative values as, as, as being manipulative, supplier centric, uh, complacent and arrogant, overt arrogance, as we called it. And then we had the positive mindsets being around authenticity, client centricity, proactive creativity and tactful audacity. And I just want to come back to, you asked me a question earlier on about um, which interviews did I find the most interesting? And it was when I went back to that that Starbucks um, case study, it, it, you know, that was, that was where those, a lot of those words came together in that case study, both on the sell side and the buy side. And that, you know, that, that's why I sort of, mentioned those set of interviews had a hugely influential role to play in the final conclusions. Um, but when, when I came back, having defined them, the, the question then became, so what, you know, nice words, but, uh, yes, we've got the customer story, but how do we operationalize that? How do we test the theory? And that then led us on to an incredible, um, journey working again with HP's sales organization in Western Europe, selling large complex deals. And we had two control groups and we created a training program, uh, designed to equip everybody working on these large deals with an attitude of mind, if you like, uh, an approach that was underpinned by these four mindsets. We looked at, we looked at a huge amount of detail at every single stage of the sales cycle. And we challenged with the teams that were working on these deals, how can we go beyond what we would normally do against these mindsets? And how do we provide evidence that we're, we're actually living these values? You know, from the moment we may receive an RFP to the moment we present and negotiate, you know, right through the, you know, the cycle. And I, I, it was an incredible journey because I was working with highly intelligent, bright people, um, across Western Europe and working on these large deals and, uh, then tracking the performance of those deals over a period of time. 
And at the same time, comparing those results with um, uh, the other half of the European sales force that was focusing on Central and Eastern Europe at the time, uh, both with similar market opportunities. And uh, that gave us a huge amount of insight into um, the kind of tools that we could provide these teams that would enable them to easily and simply adopt the mindsets. Um, and we found, we found that quite interesting. You know, first of all, the, the, the beauty about the mindsets is it's not a complicated methodology. You know, it's very simple to follow and it's very situational. So whether you're in a negotiation or whether you are wanting to pitch to someone you haven't pitched to before, you, you, you can think of the mindsets and you can think, well, how can I live these mindsets in this particular call? So what, what was interesting was approaching sales performance from the lens of mindset as opposed to a technique or a methodology or a trick or something else, which has typically been uh, the domain of sales training up until this point in time. It was a very different approach just based on how you how you thought and acted. Um, so yeah, um, the results were amazing. You know, we, uh, we sort of transform, I say we, because it, I mean, they were the, they were the players, the actors, if you like, I was simply there as a coach, um, uh, sort of encouraging them along the way and observing how they were doing um, and writing it up as part of, um, my research findings and you know the conversions went from one in 15 to I think it was 73 percent conversion rates on these large deals um, market share went from something like 0.1 percent to seven percent I think it was um, over a two and a half year period um, the value of the deals was around I think it was four billion or something it was a huge amount of success um, and it was exciting because there was a new culture being formed. There was a new language being formed in these teams. Uh, no one could quite get inside the organization quite how successful they were. You know, they were, you know, often, you know, it was, they were saying, well, was it about price? You know, just putting prices down led you, you know, it wasn't, you know, wasn't to do with price, but uh, it, it got up to Carly Fiorini, who was the CEO of HP at the time. You know, we had articles published in magazines on the success rate. And, um, and then um, that gave us the, the evidence that we wanted, that there was a complete connection between mindsets and sales performance. Wow, it's just quite phenomenal. So, yeah, it was. So where where does that kind of lead us to um, today? Well, it, it, I mean, it's interesting because, you know, whilst the research was conducted um, all those years ago, you know, so if I finished my dissertation in 2009, you know, we, we have evolved and, you know, the uh, we're working across many different clients since then in many different parts of the world. And you know, the research, if you like, the data still continues. We're still asking customers the question, how do you want to be sold to? We're still 
distilling that data and we've developed more sophisticated tools now to be able to uh, sort of analyze mindsets and get customer feedback. And so um, I think where, where does it lead to it? It, it? it provides, I think, the sales profession with another layer of capability. Um, you need to be competent and you need to be skilled and you need to be good at listening and questioning. All of those things are still relevant. Um, but it... It, 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 the, the, where the, where my research addresses, uh, uh, and this is borne out with um, the academic research I've done on the topic as well, is it is the first piece of research that's ever been done on the topic of values and mindsets to this degree. No other no other academic has researched the topic um, as as we've done, and I believe um, the sales profession has. Uh, or the academic community have, have kind of um, not yet fully embraced it in a way from a research uh, angle. So I think where could it go? Well, um, more research, you know, more ideas. Are the values still relevant today in this in this world in which we live in? Uh, compared to, you know, do, do we do we need to add new words? I mean, there, there, I guess there will be people who will take these this framework that we've created and shape it and tweak it and explore it from different angles. But at the moment, um, there's there's been no push. There's been no pushback. You know, even since two thousand and nine, the, the the words tactful audacity. And proactive creativity and client centricity and authenticity still stand very strong. Um, I, I think the other thing that's interesting when you take this concept around the world is that what, that it, because it doesn't address behavior um, and competence, it, it, the words seem to fit with very different cultures. Um, so whether you're in Japan or Korea or Europe or the Latin Americas, the the framework of values and mindsets allows people to use their their uh, cultural context and apply it as they see fit. So it's it's very universal um, approaching this from a values perspective. But where where will it go? I don't know. I I think that um, I'll let someone else figure that out. But uh, it sort of started a train of thought on a topic, and I, I it'd be interesting to see if the academic community um, pick this up and start to do their own, you know, sort of research. A few might have done, but not many. And um, could you shed more light, I guess, on how? Um... You know, if anyone's listening to this podcast and they're thinking, oh, well, <laughs> we would like a four billion incremental increase in revenue uh, based on, uh, on the mindset intervention. Um, you know, how, how have you subsequently engaged with customers, um, you know, leveraging the use of the mindsets? Um, we've we've done it in in sort of different levels. I mean, you've you've got um you can you can approach it from a cultural level and what drives the right culture and you know how to embed 
a culture such that the sales organization lives those mindsets. And so that's a management kind of initiative. So there are all sorts of things that one can do at a management level when you're looking at, you know, how to set vision for your sales team and, 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 uh, how to, um, how to coach, you know, around the mindsets. And of course, we've got a lot of experience now of, of, helping with development programs uh, organizations explore that from a leadership point of view and of course from a selling point of view it's the same you know it's the you know the the you know how do you embed the values and mindsets that customers want in a mindset of the sales force and of course you know we're able to do that because of the the research is so compelling it, it often starts with actually interviewing their customers first and getting them to listen to their customers and them seeing it through the lens of of mindsets and values that they begin to really appreciate that this is hugely important but very few salespeople in my experience have actually seriously questioned what are the values and mindsets that they have that underpin the way they sell and i think that you know the sales mindset survey tool that we have that's available on the website you know uh, freely available on the website um is a, is not a bad starting point you know for reflecting on it um so yeah there there are many initiatives that can be taken to help um build a culture that is based on a values driven approach uh which um of course, we have a lot of experience in, and like anyone could, you know, sort of reach out to us and ask us questions about it. But um, and also, you know, speak to our customers about it. Yeah, great. So, I guess the big question is: if you were going to do another dissertation, would you, <laughs> would you, would you do something on a similar topic? Would you do it again? I, I don't know if I'd do this one again, actually. But, you know, I, I think that, you know, if we start to look to the future and look at the context of the world in which we live, um, I'm definitely interested in the whole area of, and I've talked about it earlier, sort of predictability of performance. And I think, you know, now we, we're in a data-driven world and, you know, the, the, the connection between data and and behavior uh i think is really interesting mm. uh, and i think that a, a new frontier if you like though it's not one that i would pursue right now because i i, I think it's for other people to take this up but if i were doing my doctorate again i would probably do it around the whole idea of um predictability I think um, what you were saying earlier around um, around your own values and how your values influence the way you kind of process data <laughs> is also quite interesting because uh, there might be um, unconscious bias biases in the in the tools that we're using today in order to predict for um, you know future trends and um predictive analytics because uh no one views views it through the lens of actually understanding your own values first that could be a good one for your next it could be 
Yeah, it could be. Um, yes, it's very difficult to be totally objective when you've got a particular sort of train of thought that you've spent so much time thinking about. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's, it, the, I suppose the question is, is, is it a universal truth? Yeah, the values drive actions, actions are behavior, yeah, or not. Well, if anyone's listening to this has the answer, please let us know. <laughs> you got out of that one very well, Will. <laughs> Great. Well, Phil, thank you so much. It's been really fascinating to just to hear about the story of your doctorate. It certainly sounds like it was a journey and it's still having an impact on so many people today. So as a student, as a someone who's working in Consalia as well um yeah thank you and I think you've really um you've really pushed sales as a profession to the next step through your dissertation well that thank you very much Will. Thank you.